Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I am Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer. And with me today is my co-host, Josh Abatoy, who is the executive director of American Reformer. Uh, we are today going to talk about a variety of issues that are facing most of the evangelical denominations in America. This was prompted by an article that we had uh, just over a week ago, um, which was by Megan Basham. Uh, this was more of an investigative journalism piece, and it was looking at things that are going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and that's Josh's uh, denomination. I'm uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, there, there's similar things going on in, in the PCA, um, but this article in particular was, uh, was Megan's um, deep dive into what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, in particular with regard to whether or not there are churches that have female pastors. And as she's shown, it's, it's quite obvious that that is somewhat widespread in the, the SBC uh, even though the the official doctrine of the the SBC doesn't allow that, and so there was a pastor, Mike Law, who had been trying to get an amendment um, to um, to, the, to the official um, uh, doctrine of the SBC in order to make it m- much more explicit that there could not be uh, female pastors. And it was a fascinating piece uh, looking at um, things that are happening with uh, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church, and uh, and ways in which they've been going pretty quickly down the the full-on egalitarian um, kind of direction. But what uh, Megan really uh, was kind of um, shocking, even uh, even to me, knowing that there's a lot of this stuff going on, was was the way that she she was bringing out how there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, LGBT stuff happening with Saddleback too, where there's a lot of people, even official uh, people there who are um, starting to pretty enthusiastically uh, support, um, support this stuff. And uh, so it was a, it was a very good piece, very extensive, got a lot of attention. Um, Even uh, Bart Barber, the, the president of the Southern Baptist convention was, was chiming in. Um, Josh, you're, you're in the SBC. You're very active in the SBC. Um, what, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, maybe some folks might read Megan's article and come away with the takeaway that the SBC is like largely egalitarian or ready to fold on this issue. But, you know, it's actually not. I mean, most of the churches in the SBC are very conservative, um, even most of the leaders. But Megan puts her finger on some very interesting dynamics. And I, I think at a high level, first, we have to understand there, there, are, uh, there are actually bona fide egalitarians in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a small camp. It's probably something like 5% of the total SBC 
are legitimate egalitarians. And it increasingly appears that Rick Warren falls into this camp. Then there's another small camp, and maybe this, this, is, this is also maybe another 5% of the SBC that would say, you know, I'm personally opposed to egalitarianism, but there should be room for it in the convention. Um, and then, you know, the biggest, the biggest chunk of people would say, I'm against egalitarianism, and I think the SBC should, should actually police it and, you know, not, not, um, not allow churches to be members of the SBC if they have egalitarian practices. But they have um, various objections to uh, Mike Law's proposal as far as how to fix uh, the egalitarianism problem, and, uh, and and we can we can park on that a little bit. But the the I guess the interesting thing there is that Mike has tried various routes before he before he tried to amend the Constitution. I, without getting into all of the boring procedural details. Um, the, the SBC, it's a voluntary association, right? So it doesn't, it's not hierarchical. There's no, um, authoritative structure setting policy for churches, but it is a, it does have a membership and it has criteria for membership. And the way that's typically policed is, um, well, the, the, the Southern Baptist constitution says in order to be a member um, you must be a church that is in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, you know, and closely identifies with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is our sort of very relatively modest uh, statement of faith uh, that, that we require. And policing that membership is what's called the Credentials Committee. Uh, this is a committee of people appointed by SBC leadership who. Um, investigates particular churches that may be stepping out of line and removes churches from the Southern Baptist Convention if they are not eligible to be members. So Mike Law, um, you know, this whole thing started for him because he noticed that there were five churches in a very close uh, radius uh, of his church in Northern Virginia that had women pastors. And he initially uh, simply put the question to the Credentials Committee, are you are you enforcing the language of the Baptist faith and message, which says that the pastor, um, the office of pastor is, is restricted to men. He asked them, are you, are you enforcing that? Can a church with women pastors be considered to be in friendly cooperation with the SBC? He didn't get an answer. He subsequently reported those churches to the credentials committee and no action was taken on them. Uh, and this was all sort of last year. So he rolls into the convention in Anaheim and he drafts and submits a resolution. This is a um, statement of opinion by the convention, essentially. The resolution would have said, um, you know, th this, uh, the language in the Baptist faith and message is clear, and the credentials committee should enforce its requirements on Southern Baptist churches. Uh, that resolution was killed in committee. It was not brought to the floor at the Anaheim convention. This is the convention last summer. And uh, the, on procedural grounds, essentially the, the argument was it's inappropriate for to use a resolution as the procedural means to give policy guidance to Southern Baptist employees. Did they, so say, then, did no, they say what yeah. would be the appropriate uh, means of doing that? No. 
not not in their official communications. So now, you know, Mike's Mike's in an interesting position. He's now tried two different routes um, to get clarity on what seems to be pretty clear on its face, um, and he's been uh, stonewalled both times. So finally, and this is in consultation with some very senior people in the SBC, some very smart people who have been plugged in for a long time, but he he makes a motion from the floor of the convention in Anaheim to amend the constitution and establish a bright line rule um, that essentially just says um, a church that has a women pastor will not be considered to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist convention, full stop. The the merits of doing so is that it removes uh, discretion or, or potential discretion from the enforcement of the Baptist faith and message And keep in mind here, Baptists are not strictly confessional or strict subscriptionists. So we don't require churches to strictly subscribe to the Baptist faith and message. We simply say that they must closely identify with. And historically speaking, closely identify what, you know, people would often interpret that as don't, don't have a practice that openly contradicts the Baptist faith and message. Perhaps you're you know, carrying out of that document is imperfect in some ways and you have some room to grow. But if you have a practice that facially contradicts what's in the statement, uh, then you're out. And, okay. and the credentials committee had used that as sort of a, um, a rationale for not taking action. They said it's unclear to us um, what's actually required of us in, in these cases of churches with women pastors. So, so Mike's amendment would, would address that. Um, and then just jumping forward, he's now encountering similar procedural resistance to his amendment as he has to the other attempts that he's made. So leadership holistically, they're complementarian on paper. On paper, they agree with the Baptist faith and message, but they are not particularly interested in setting forward proposals that work, that would be efficacious um, and primarily have been stonewalling efforts to create clarity on this issue. Okay. And, and that's been uh, pretty frustrating for the people who, who are trying to figure out some way to, to, to make this enforceable. Um, is, there, is there hope that something can be done now? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it, we're, in the, we're in the throes right now. Churches, um, there's a convention in New Orleans in June, and this is the time of year when churches around the SBC decide to send messengers to the New Orleans convention. They're booking the travel, buying, you know, booking their hotel rooms, picking who's going to go as a messenger. So we're, we're, we're in the throes of it. Um, hopefully, Megan's article has been read far and wide. Uh, and is kind of generating, I mean, we've seen the readership. It's, it's clearly been very widely read. Hopefully that's generating some grassroots fervor across the SBC and, and really um, giving churches, faithful churches, the determination to show up to New Orleans. Um, because, you know, the, the, the other thing that we have to bring to the table now is that um, uh, in, in the midst of all of this kerfuffle, Southern Baptist leadership did disfellowship Saddleback uh, for for its uh, for having women pastors. Interesting move, um, especially because last summer the same committee said the guidance to us is not clear enough. We don't know um, 
we don't know if we're authorized to kick churches out for having women pastors, but now this year they've taken action on, on Saddleback. And is that, um, is that the only church? I mean, we know there are all these others, so have they been disfellowshipped? Offhand, I don't know. I believe there, there might have been one other church that was disfellowshipped. Okay. But the, the churches that Mike brought to them have, have not been uh, disfellowshipped. Okay. So, okay, so this, um, is, this is coming up pretty soon then, this summer. Um, I mean, the, the, the article um, also added the, the, the even more concerning thing to me was um, the, the LGBTQ stuff. Um, you know, if, if people think that, uh, that um, it's not that big of a deal that Saddleback has uh, women pastors, and they, and they read this article and they see that Saddleback is very quickly headed much further than just female pastors, but um, towards, um, I mean, you have to say, a pretty, pretty quick and open acceptance of, of LGBT um, um, as, um, as, as kind of a Christian imperative almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that to me would be, would be pretty eye-opening. I would think some of those people that, that say, well, the, the, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't allow women pastors, I, and I don't believe there should be either, but I, I think it's kind of unclear whether we can act on this. I mean, do they not see uh, the writing on the wall? Uh, do they not see where this is headed? I mean, has this information just not been widely known in the SBC? Yeah, it, it hasn't been. Well, you know, the SBC fought off a liberal incursion in the 70s, very famously, uh, 70s and 80s. And, you know, that Al Mohler's turnaround of Southern was part of that. And, you know, that this, I mean, it's an old kind of arguably a mainline denomination that that has successfully fought off liberalism in the past. Um, I, I a couple things. I think that you know the the evangelical immune system is pretty good when it comes to bona fide theological liberalism. When liberalism advances with you know precise theological arguments about how to interpret and apply scripture and all of that, evangelicals are pretty good at recognizing and rejecting that. Mm. Um, but, but the, the current form of drift is not, it's not being led by liberal theologians at seminaries. It's being led by megachurch pastors who are not very precise thinkers at all and are sort of emoting their way into progressive stances. Um, and I, I just think it's, um, you know, they've gotten very good at, um, couching their language in terms that, uh, appeal to the evangelical mindset. And I just think that, you know, the, 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 the immune system is still catching up to, to these more sophisticated attacks. Like this is much more, um, I think the way that the way that the liberal incursion is proceeding now, it's, it's much more of a issue of social pressure and, you know, ultimately it, it could result in everybody looking up one day and realizing, oh, you know, the SBC came like sociologically, it became progressive overnight, and none of us realized it because nobody was nobody was doing any frontal attack on our statement of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was, you know, coming out there making honest arguments about these issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like um, it seems like there's a, there's this um, there's this indifference. Too. You know, people think that it's always going to be the, the frontal attack. 
where someone says the Bible isn't true, you know, or, or, yeah. uh, the, you know, the flood didn't happen. Um, Adam and Eve weren't real men and women. Um, Jesus, uh, didn't actually raise from the dead. They, they think it's going to be that sort of frontal attack rather than, um, all these people, including what, what seemed to be, um, some senior people just saying, well, it's not, it's not clear enough that we can act. Um, you know, if, if, if you don't have the clarity to act, to enforce your doctrine, that's, that's going to end up being just as bad as if you're introducing just rank heresy, because anything can get introduced in it. And it usually is slowly and surely, right? Most people don't just come in instantly saying Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Um, that's, that's not really how it's worked historically, um, it's it's yeah. sort of indifference uh, piece by piece. Yeah, and 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 I think there's an there's a um, I want to talk about this a little bit further into the show, but there's a little bit of an overlay with the really skinny complementarianism here too, which is essentially the the Bible verses that talk about the different roles that men and women have in the church are viewed as kind of weird random rules that you know, we don't really understand, but okay, we kind of have to obey them, but we'll essentially do the lowest possible lip service or tip of the hat to these rules. But, but there's not like a substantive point that we need to kind of seek to embody fully in our church. So as an example, and, and this is actually quite common, like the former president of the SBC, Ed Litton, he would have his wife come on stage and, and um, you know, preach a sermon on Mother's Day at his church. Um, or, you know, so, so there'll, there will be, um, there will be functional egalitarianism, even if it's formally a complementarian church or similarly, like these churches will say, okay, we don't call you the senior pastor. We call you like a senior pastoral staff member or something like that. Right. So, so they tinker with titles to avoid formally giving the title of pastor, um, but then sort of functionally load the role up with, with elder overseer pastor like functions. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not, that's not dissimilar from, from the PCA in some some ways. I, I don't think it's as widespread, um, but there was a, a, a particularly striking example in my own area um, of PCA church and they've left the PCA, but they had, they had a woman who was on staff at the church and they were very careful not, well, and at least at first not to call her a pastor, but uh, this was a very like sort of high liturgical church. Uh, its liturgy would have been much more um, Anglican in, in form. And, and so um, she was wearing clerical garb um, and she would get up in the service. It wouldn't be what's called the sermon but it would be, uh, it would be, uh, she would read the scripture and then she would essentially give like a short sermon, maybe 10 minutes, five minutes, uh, but they didn't call it the sermon. And so they would say, well, this is not a woman pastor. She's not preaching um, because, because, and it just came down to this because we decided it's not called a sermon, even though it was a sermon because it was taking God's word and it was proclaiming it and it was applying it uh, to the people. And, um, and you know that I mean, they actually left right in the middle of of the the presbytery, starting to to deal with it. They just kind of abruptly left, 
um, so that that one didn't actually have to have any action ultimately. Um, but there's also, I mean, there's also just, it sounds like same thing that you're saying. There's a, a lack of confidence. You know, it's, it's, it's this embarrassment. Um, it's like, well, yeah, okay. So we're complementary and we believe that women can't be pastors, but we, we kind of find this to be embarrassing. And so we need to do everything we possibly can to, to sort of remove the offense of this to our culture and uh, allow women to, to, to basically carry out the role of a pastor, but we'll just find a million ways to, to make sure we're not calling it that. Um, and, um, and then, you know, it just happens to be, it's very convenient that all of these issues are the very issues that will enable churches in our culture where it's increasingly hostile um, to, to the Bible to, um, to operate without so much hostility. You know, if, if you accept um, a, set, a functionally an egalitarian position, or if you accept a, um, a functionally an, an acceptance of, of homosexuality in, in all of its different forms, it's just very convenient that the culture won't, um, won't be as opposed to you anymore on those things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me, you know, people would always talk about how the Pharisees would build walls around God's law, right? They would come up with these prophylactic rules. Like if, if God's law is a fence, we need to build our own fence. That's like 20 feet past, you know, God's law to make sure we don't even get close to violating God's law. Like what's happening here is almost an inversion of that. It's, it's sort of like, let's push, to the maximal, like God's expressed these expectations about the role of men and women in church. Let's push to the almost like the maximal possible um, cabining of those rules, and and basically, you know, marginalize those rules from their from having any effect on the functioning of the church to a maximal extent. Um, and yeah, I, I think you know, and then you tie in the the LGBT stuff. I mean, similarly there the way that the drift happens with current evangelicals, they're not going to like, they're not going to just frontally say like, I reject the teaching of scripture on sexual morality. But you know, what you're seeing, it seems like a lot of the saddleback affiliated ministries. And, and I think, you know, you probably see this with revoice a little bit is often they adopt. I mean, it's almost kind of like, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> like yeah. we're not going to, we're just not really going to, we're going to talk about all the positive aspects of your sexual identity and all the good things that come with it. We may occasionally make reference to the fact that eventually sanctification will demand you to be celibate, but we're not going to, like, that's all going to be pastorally determined. And, you know, we're not going to beat you up on the front end with that. We're going to hopefully you know, hopefully down the road, years down the road after you've been saved and sanctified for years and years, maybe you can get to that point. But in the meantime, we're not going to like try to pastor you out of sexual sin very aggressively. Yeah. Like, so similarly, like it's not a frontal attack. It's a, it's such a total de-emphasis of things that are very clear in scripture that it's functionally read out. Yeah, I mean that that's I mean that's a pattern that I I've seen in my own study of church history. It seems to be almost a, a law that at the beginning of of drift you will have 
combination of factors. It, it, it'll be indifference toward the church's doctrine, or it will be um, a lack of clarity uh, about it. It's not going to be rejection of it. it. It'll just be simply like, well, it's just, we, we can't really come down hard on this. Um, it's uh, it's just not clear enough or, or, or something to that effect. And then you move to a second stage, which is eventually that you'll have people that say, you, you just simply need, we're just asking to be tolerated. Um, just, just tolerate our position. We're not asking to be uh, the ones calling the shots. We're not asking to be the official position, just tolerate us. Maybe the SBC hasn't actually gotten there for most, it seems, it seems like most people haven't arrived at that point yet. Um, but then once you get to that point, there will be a kind of critical mass that grows once you start to tolerate it. Um, at, at some point, it's inevitable that those who had asked for tolerance because the door had been opened with this uh, indifference or, or lack of clarity, they will then, they will then um, say, they will demand equality. And they'll, they'll, they'll say there has yeah. to be this equality. And then you'll finally get to the final stage, which is once they have the upper hand, they will, they will force those who hold biblical convictions out. They, they, they won't ever ultimately allow them to, to stay in. So it just seems to be inevitable. I've never seen this not happen. I mean, well, there are the, there are the rare turnarounds. I mean, there's the, the Southern Baptist turnaround, which is, in the '90s, which is pretty, um, pretty was pretty striking. Um, there, there was, um, I mean, there was a kind of a similar turnaround at my uh, alma mater, my seminary, Westminster Seminary, uh, which had a bunch of problems um, in the the Bible department, and they actually were able to turn that around. Uh, but that seems to be much more the exception uh, than the norm to that pattern. Yeah, yeah, it. it um... No, that's right. And, and you know, look, I mean, you were asking me about what this means holistically for the SBC earlier. Like the, the conservatives in the SBC and a lot of the evangelical world, they know that, that egalitarianism is like the canary in the coal mine. If your denomination caves on that, it's very quickly going to cave on a lot of other stuff. I think Al Mohler was quoted in Meg Basham's article making that very point. It's a basic mm. one, but conservatives know it. The stakes are really such. I, I think if the if the SBC doesn't get this right somehow, if they don't get clarity on this this summer, um, there's been a trickle of conservative Baptist churches leaving, and that's going to turn into a torrent. And I think this summer is the critical one. Um, a lot of people engage in brinksmanship, and I don't always do it, um, but uh, th in this case, it's totally justified. I really think this is. This summer is the is it's the determinative convention mm. on the direction uh, overall. You're just going to see massive departures. I mean, even you know, and, and Megan's article I think references this a bit. But Mike Law is running this website called SBCAmendment.org, where he's he's blogging, he's doing all this different stuff in support of his efforts. By the way, this is just a small church pastor who's doing this in his nights and weekends. Uh, total labor of love from Mike. He has no ambitions to like run to be some important Southern Baptist guy. He just he's just a faithful local pastor. But one of the things that he's done is um, while he's been trying to garner support for his amendment, um, he's he's c collected all of these correspondences with churches all over the convention, and he's got scores of 
messages from conservative churches saying, brother, love what you're doing, but we left because of concern over issues like this. And on the flip side, he's got, he's got scores of emails from egalitarians who say like, stop what you're doing. You're, you're, you know, you're a mean divisive person. And like the, the, you know, the SBC is huge. Um, and it's not studied very well quantitatively. You know, there's no, there's no like year over year polling on shifts in theological views uh, necessarily in the SBC, but this is some of the best evidence we've ever had on uh, direction of the SBC and potential drift. Hmm. You know that when you just mentioned um, Pastor Law and you mentioned his, um, uh, you know, he's not he's not this um, um, uh, this a sort of bomb thrower. He's just a, a humble pastor doing this work, and yet he's getting all this pushback. You're mean and you're you're divisive, and and you're you're causing um, trouble in in the church. Um, it it reminds me of something that. The Apostle Paul says um, in in Romans, and um, he he t- he talks about how um, how true doctrine will um, will actually um, be the the means of avoiding divisions. It's, it's kind of fascinating. He says in Romans sixteen verse seventeen, "I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions." And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. You know, we we hear so many people. They always say, "Well, it's the people who insist on sound doctrine. They're the ones causing the divisions." Paul says, "It is those who create obstacles contrary to sound doctrine who mm-hmm. are the ones who who cause division in the church, um, who cause sinful division." It's it's exactly flipped from what is. Um, probably being said to Pastor Law, and, and so often said in these these debates. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's powerful. That's it's not um, <laughs> yeah. the the default The default setting is that those adhering to orthodoxy and, and biblical standards are are unifiers. That's just it's not you know, um, yeah. yeah. That that's uh, yeah, that's good and very true in this case. I think. Um, ben, Ben, I have to ask you, I mean, we've been going on and on about the SBC and, you know, lest people think that, uh, the SBC is the only denomination facing issues. What, uh, what, what, what do you think is going to be big at the PCA this summer? Um, are there some, are there some similarly transformative, uh, debates going on in the life of the PCA? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the big one is more, um, has more to do with, um, sexuality and in particular, um, homosexuality, um, the, the, the issue that just keeps coming up year after year, it's kind of like what's happening in the SBC that it's not getting dealt with, um, is, is the issue of uh, whether or not a pastor um, can, well, an elder, um, an elder period. So in the PCA, we have a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders Teaching elder would be what most people think of as the full-time pastor. A ruling elder is um, is has to be able to teach, but they they're they're primarily responsible for shepherding the people and uh, and um, uh, carrying out the the kind of rule in the local church and and in the the regional church. Um, 
so there was there was a a PCA pastor named Greg Johnson. Um, he um, he said that he was gay, um, but he he said that he was uh, celibate. Uh, he he was not. He, he was fighting against um, homosexual desire or, or lust, and 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 he wasn't engaging in homosexual activity. But he said he was gay, and and he was pretty open about this. Um, he, he wrote a book. He's very big supporter of Revoice. Revoice was meeting at his church in St. Louis. And, um, and, and so this was causing problems. People were trying to deal with this in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, some were trying to get him removed from his pastoral office and that, that was not successful. So there's, there, there's ways to amend our, our doctrine. The PCA is, is, it's not, we're not a strict subscriptionist doctrine, uh, denomination that actually creates some ambiguities itself. Um, because, um, we say that you must subscribe to the system of doctrine and you must not take exceptions that strike at the substance of the, the system of doctrine. Of course, that becomes a little bit, uh, difficult to know, you know, precisely what that means. What, what is the substance and, and what is the system and what's not, but that's, that's probably another issue. Sounds um, sounds analogous to the to the Southern Baptist uh, debate as well on that, huh? Yeah, so, I mean it's it's, it's a way in which, but we're something below that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I suppose we're probably a little stricter than than the um, SBC um, on on that, in that you do have to affirm that that you you if that you agree with the system of doctrine. Uh, yeah, but there's still there's still some similar ambiguities. Um, th- that to the side though. Um, there were there were uh, plenty of uh, so our our we have regional churches as well we have the in, local church and then the the local churches in a certain region are grouped into the presbytery and then there's the general assembly which would be like the SBC's convention and different presbyteries can put forward amendments um, to our book of church order or even to our doctrinal statement the Westminster Confession of Faith and these. This kept happening year after year after year. So two summers ago, there were amendments put forward uh, to be voted on at the General Assembly um, to say something to the effect of you cannot be a pastor in the PCA if you identify as gay. There was all of this um, back and forth. And, and, and it's, this is very similar to the SBC. People were saying, well, it's just not clear enough. What do you mean by identify? Um and and it was just it was it was nitpicking over over those kind of things and and people were claiming well you're gonna you're gonna rule out uh, struggling Christians you're gonna you're gonna make uh, you know Christians who who've just been converted and and who who came out of a, a, a gay um, practice you're gonna say to them they're not welcome in the church and so it was actually really convoluted and and sometimes um, it, it just seemed a bit disingenuous because. Um, no one was saying anything about church membership. This was always about pastoral office. And it was claiming that if you're going to be a pastor, you cannot, you cannot just openly embrace the gay identity. And, uh, and this, so that those, uh, that amendment failed, uh, cause it has to go back to all the presbyteries and it has to pass by two thirds and it didn't pass. And then another one was put forward last summer and same thing didn't pass in the presbyteries and i assume there will be another one this summer so we're, we're kind of stuck in this limbo and it's it's a weird situation because the general assembly is becoming more 
I guess you could say conservative as a whole, but the individual presbyteries aren't. And the, the reason for that is because ruling elders who are rarely seminary trained, um, they're just normal men, um, normal jobs, but who also are, are elders, they are showing up more and more to general assembly. And they tend to be much more conservative and much more confessional. And they are, they are ensuring that these amendments pass. Now, the threshold for passing is lower at General Assembly, so that's part of it. Uh, but then these amendments get, pack, get sent back to the presbyteries, and they have to vote on it. And the presbyteries tend to be dominated by teaching elders who are seminary trained. And teaching elders tend to be more on the left um, theologically in, in the PCA. And so it keeps failing in the presbytery. So I'm honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It seems like we're at a certain kind of impasse right now on this issue. Um, and it's just kind of um, continuing to be the same thing um, every year. Can, can every I ask year. you a quick question about that? Do the, um, the presbyteries, is there like a... I mean, this is sort of like a federated system, right? Presumably, um, you know, you've probably got some like really massive conservative presbyteries in the Mid-South that have equal representation to like a presbytery with like three churches in the Northeast or something, right? Is, is there some sort of, is there some weird um, federalism in the system going yeah. on there that's giving unequal representation to uh, maybe less populated presbyteries? Yeah, you know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that, but that that could be the case. Um, the presbytery that I'm in is really big in, in North Texas. It's um, it's over forty churches, but you've got some presbyteries I think that have maybe ten, um, and so yeah. that that would be an interesting um, dynamic. Although I don't know that the smaller ones are necessarily um, isolated uh, in in maybe less conservative areas. I just, I don't actually know how that, that breakdown works, but there, there very well could be an issue mm -hmm. where there's kind of um, slanted uh, representation in that way. What is just another question. Is it possible to stack the teaching elder boards at various presbyteries? So in other words, you know, um, like our, I don't know if this matters, but like, you know, RUF ministers, do they get, you know, votes at the presbytery meetings? They do because every every teaching elder can vote at presbytery. Ruling elders are only assigned proportionally to the size of the church. So if you've got a church that has two thousand members, they can send a, a set number of elders, which is higher than if you had a church that had fifty people. So so ru ruling elders. So that that church with fifty people probably sends one ruling elder. That church with two thousand people probably sends. Um, I, I should know the, <laughs> the exact percentage, but yeah. uh, I, I can't remember. But you know, let's say four or five. Um, so so there, within the presbyteries, it, there is a much higher uh, representation in the big churches, um, which is actually a, a contrast with um, other Presbyterian denominations where um, they have equal representation with the churches, no matter what the size. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's... Um, Teaching elders are definitely um, tend to be overrepresented, or, or I don't know if that's the right way to say, it, but they, there tend to be more of them. Uh, although I think that's that might be changing because I think people are realizing this. It, it, in my own presbytery, this amendment this year, um, 
it actually passed by three votes. <laughs> and uh, I think it was 45, 48 in favor of adding this language that if you identify as gay, you cannot be a pastor. Um, and that surprised a lot of people because they they would see the presbytery I, I'm in as not necessarily really being that, that conservative. Um, but um, it was, um, I think a lot of ruling elders showed up. And so mm -hmm. um, ruling, that's, the thing is, is that you, you can have a certain number of ruling elders that can come, but they, they don't have to come. And so it, it's actually going to be dependent in a lot of presbyteries because it was really close in a lot of them. It's going to be dependent on whether or not people actually show up. Um, yeah. And this is an issue where sometimes these things fail simply because uh, not enough people show up. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the, the turnout problem is huge in the SBC. In the SBC, we've got, well, first of all, SBC employees frequently show up, right? So if you're an IMB missionary, you're an SBC employee, or if you're, um, you know, work for any of the seminaries or the various other ministries they have, and oftentimes there's opportunities to get some funding that way. But the real way, they, the, real way the vote can be manipulated is through the North American Mission Board, which... Um, you know, underwrites church planting across the United States. And they, you know, so they're, they're underwriting the budget for all of these churches until the churches get to self-sustainability. Um, and they, they um, you know, there's been independent reporting on this in mainstream outlets, but they, you know, they really tip the vote. They'll get, they'll get hundreds, thousands of these folks to show up uh, to various conventions. And, you know, it's kind of on its face, it's sort of a conflict of interest for like a recipient of a, convention or, you know, any association to be voting on how the benefits of that association are going to be parceled out, um, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting issue. One that, you know, if uh, the Southern Baptist Convention survives this summer, I'd love to uh, find a way to fix eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned something earlier that, um, that might be a, a good way for us to, um, to close, uh, this discussion um, that you wanted to come back to. And that was um, just the issues that are being brought up with regard to egalitarian position, complementarian position. Um, the, the fact that there are people that, that take the label complementarian, but they, they maybe could be described as embarrassed complementarians. Um, sometimes I've heard of described as thin complementarian. I mean, is that even a good label um, at all? What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I guess I was tweeting about this a bit today, but it, I mean, it seems to me like a lot of modern complementarians are, they're just embarrassed about what the Bible says about men and women. And, uh, you know, and so they, they oftentimes, I mean, you've probably seen these uh, guys who teach like the eternal subordination of the sun yeah. or, you know, even like uh, Josh Butler, uh, you know, writing the really cringeworthy stuff for, for, uh, for gospel coalition, which we talked about on prior episode, but it seems like they all have a really hard time saying, Hey, men and women are naturally different. And so naturally they're going to have some different functions in society and in the church and all these other places. That's perfectly normal, natural and healthy. And it's hardwired into how God made us. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. That that's a straight face argument, yeah. but the complementarian stuff, it's, it just reads like very, very complex mental gymnastics hmm. and oftentimes distorting like, some theological points that really matter 
all to come up with a complex rationalization for like, you know, we don't understand why, but God wants men and women to act a little bit differently in church. Like yeah. it's absurd. Um, and I guess, I guess I'm, I'm skeptical that, you know, the modern complementarianism is really going to end up being a bulwark against egalitarianism. Because if you start out from this defensive posture where you like, don't, where you assume that like God's laws may or may not make sense, but we have to obey them. I mean, the motivated exegesis is going to take you to where the culture is in no time oh, yeah. at all. If that's your starting point. Yeah. It's, it, you're saying that God made this arbitrary decision. Um, yeah. o- only men can be pastors and this is completely arbitrary. And so people eventually they're going to, they're going to say, well, like, why, why in the world, if men and women are exactly equal and identical in every single way, then it, it starts to seem like God actually did something like wrong. You know, I mean, at the very least it's arbitrary. Um, yeah. But, but even so, I mean, like it almost seems rational there to, to say that um, it's like, well, women are just as capable of being good preachers. They're just as capable of being good shepherds. Uh, so, but, but yet you say they can't be. And, and people yeah. say, well, like, why? I mean, that's so arbitrary. Why would, why would I accept that? But then when you realize that God made men and, men and women different so that they would serve different roles, different roles in, in the family, different roles in society, different roles in the church, and that's a really good thing. And unless you can celebrate the goodness of that, I don't see how you can, you can maintain complementarianism for very long. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's um you know it's 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 a word that I mean I guess is okay complementarian. Um, there there's a sense in which in in the family you need a husband you need a wife they complement each other. Uh, the husband does certain things the wife does certain things and and they they don't interchange those things. But there can be that that missing component which is authority. Um, they're not just different and they're not just doing different things that can't be interchanged only the husband has authority in that relationship um in the 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 overarching sense and it's the same in the church only men have been um, have been made by god to exert that authority and there's actually something about how god made men that makes them suited to that and that's about the most offensive thing you could say in, yeah. in our world. So are, it's you, not, are you suggesting <laughs> that there's hierarchy? <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. It's, a, it's yeah. a crazy thing that I'm suggesting something that everyone in the history of the universe has recognized until what? I mean, the 19th century. Um, I, I guess maybe a little bit in the 18th century, but still, um, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right in this respect, Ben. Like the um, complementarianism viewed in this light was kind of a rebranding effort, right? Like it was kind of like a, we, we don't want to defend patriarchy. We're not patriarchalists. Like no. we don't want to defend hierarchy per se. Um, so complementarianism was sort of a, a rebrand effort uh, to, and sort of implicit in it is this idea that the way that Christians talked about gender for 1800 years was deeply flawed and bad and problematic so we need to kind of come up with a new word to describe how we really view the the relationship between the two sexes. And, you know, 
I mean, it's like you said, logically, the word kind of makes sense when deployed certain ways. But if you look at the movement as a whole, like it's a very sort of defensive crouch movement. Yeah, it's 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 to use the the title of uh, John Errett's article from a couple of years ago at American Reformer. It's it's the embarrassment reflex. Yes, that, it, that, I mean, that's what that's what drove the the um, the the, the complementarian arguments. And, and here I'm not I'm not like taking shots at a lot of the good work that that people have done um, that would probably fall under that category of complementarian. I think where they actually genuinely are right in what what they're saying, but that basic impulse to to say that oh we it's not enough to just teach what the church has taught and what the Bible teaches, we have to kind of prove that we're not bad guys. Um, yeah. That, that embarrassment uh, reflex, that, that's certainly behind some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, probably a good good place for us to uh, bring this to a close today. Um, this is a um, very important issue in, in many denominations, not just the, the Southern Baptist Convention or the Presbyterian Church in America, if you haven't read Megan Basham's article yet, it's uh, called Mr. Smith Goes to the Convention, and it is a great deep dive into uh, these issues, um, issues of egalitarianism, LGBTQ, as they are making inroads in, in the SBC, but it's, it's very applicable to any number of evangelical denominations. So I definitely encourage our listeners to, to read that article, check it out. And uh, check out our website. You'll find plenty of other great material as well. So until next time, we'll see you guys later. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AM Reformer.